This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular story podcast. As always, I am very, very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode. You have myself, you have my lovely wife, Laurel, and sleeping right beside us is our today three-week-old son. So you might hear some baby sounds. Fingers crossed he will nap. Peacefully, well, like an angel. Well, we we will probably not be that lucky, but let's just see what happens. Yeah. Um. So here's what we're going to do this week. We're going to shake things up. We've obviously been really busy raising our child. I'm back to work. Um, Laurel's still on maternity leave. I'm still recovering from COVID. So there's like a hefty amount of brain fog in the Midnight Myth house. We're not as sharp as we normally are. We haven't had a full night's sleep in over three weeks at this point. And probably won't get a full night's sleep for in. the rest of our lives. Probably until he's 17. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we are, but we still want to try to do as many podcast episodes as we can. And as we were kicking around, we're planning a full Midnight Myth treatment episode. However, it's not actually ready. We've really just started it and we want to do a little more work on it before we bring it to you. So that might be next week. It might be the week after that. But I thought it might be fun to do, hey, we didn't do a traditional Christmas episode. We didn't do a traditional New Year's Eve episode. And this has been a year where I think due to the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of us have watched a lot A lot of content, yeah. There's been a lot of things watched. There's been a lot of books read. There's been a lot of music listened to because we really can't do anything else. So what I wanted to do was have a loose, open conversation with you, the Dear Midnight Myth listeners, about the things that Laurel and I, there's Arthur sneezing, watched over the course of the pandemic, what we thought of them, and... um, maybe recommendations if you haven't seen something. 
and we're going to probably spoil most things. So if you hear something that you haven't watched yet, you might want to skip forward. But the conversation's going to be loose. We might pick out some nuggets of things that really stood out. And we're going to do this as long as Arthur lets us or when we hit our normal episode time, which is around about an hour, whichever happens first. Yeah, so join us. This will be kind of a fireside chat about what we have been entertaining ourselves with through COVID, uh, super off the cuff and loose, and we hope that you enjoy. Um, Laurel, before we get too heavy in, into it, do your thing. Yeah, so uh, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We're also on the web at midnightmyth.com. And on that website, you can find links to our merch store and our Patreon. Uh, I paused our Patreon contributions for January because I didn't know if we would have any episodes out, but I'll probably restart those in February as we have seen that we're able to get some content out there for you. Uh, and we're so, so grateful for everybody who supports us on Patreon. If you want to support us for a low monthly donation, it really helps us continue making content for you. Um, other than that, uh, the best thing you can do for the podcast is leave us a rating or a review, especially if you can give us five stars, recommend us to a friend on Apple podcasts or in your daily life. Uh, that's super helpful and helps us get out there. Oh, also wheel of Kaw fans, Steve and I recorded our first half of our discussion on Stephen King's it. Um, and then the holidays and I got sick and a baby happened. So I haven't been able to mix it and post it, but that will be up soon. I promise you. And I promise Steve, we will get this up sooner rather than later. Yeah. Thank you so much for your patience on that. Yeah. It's been sitting there since the last week of December. Oh my God. Yeah. Here we are at the end of January, beginning February, whatever the date is. I don't know dates anymore. (laughs) All right. So let's do our 2020 what we did to not go crazy and our thoughts on it episode. It's so hard to even remember, you know, when this all started, all the things that we have consumed because early in the pandemic, when we were super locked down, that was all we were doing. We were doing that and playing Hogwarts battle, the, uh, the board game, just the two of us, uh, before we finally were able to see like maybe a couple of friends socially distanced or some family members socially distanced or like go outside more frequently because we weren't terrified of catching the virus from every passing uh, person. So all we did was consume. And that has been the case, you know, ever since. But really early on, I think we were just round the clock binging TV. Well, I'd like to start before March of 2020. Yeah. Before we went into the hellscape that is the 2020 COVID pandemic, and then the subsequent presidential election. And I want to talk about the time before. Oh, my God. When we used to do this thing where we would pay way too much money. Oh, my God. And go to a public place to see a gigantic screen play a movie with a huge surround sound. They called them, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, Theaters. Yeah. Theaters? Theaters. 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 I don't know if you remember the theaters, but Laurel and I actually went and saw the movie in the movie theaters, and that was Birds of Prey. That was the last thing we saw before we couldn't go to movies anymore was Birds of Prey. Absolutely. So Birds of Prey, I'd like to start our conversation with that. Um, I adored that movie. Uh, If you want to deep dive into it, 
our friend M at Verbal Diorama did a whole episode on Birds Excellent. of Prey. Yeah. But just a few things to call out that I think is fun about that movie. One, the character Harley Quinn went from a side character in Batman the Animated Series to having her own comics to being in Suicide Squad, not a successful movie, and then into Birds of Prey. And I love how balls to the walls Birds of Prey was. You know, one of the best descriptions I'd say of it is the entire stakes of the movie come down to a bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich. Yeah. Um, Something that I have really appreciated about what DC has been doing in the last couple of years uh, is that they have shed the uh, kind of obligation to try and copy the Marvel Cinematic Universe to try and be the, like, super um, uh, cohesive, everything ties in together, everything has a set style uh, kind of aesthetic that Marvel has been so successful with and creating these like woven tapestries of like lengthy overtime stories. And DC has sort of like shed some of that obligation, uh, stopped trying to make, stopped trying to be the Marvel Cinematic Universe and started making some really out there, really risky, really wild superhero movies. So I'm talking about Birds of Prey, I'm talking about Aquaman, and the slate of upcoming movies are really exciting because they don't feel like they have to fit into this mold. They feel like they can be more like comic books. They can take these out there risks and do something entirely different. And that's what I love about Birds of Prey is that it doesn't try to be like anything else in the DC canon. It tries to be something totally different. And it lives, you know, in this expressionistic way in the mind of Harley Quinn. Uh, she's often, you know, this is something that keeps coming up. She's often compared to uh, Deadpool. She's considered like the woman Deadpool. But I think that Birds of Prey gives us a lot uh, gives us a lot more than Deadpool. It's more than just breaking the fourth wall and making meta commentary and jokes. Uh, this is really a, a character whose mind is opened and we're able to see like what the world looks like through this character's eyes, even though she's kind of totally nuts. Um, so I, I loved Birds of Prey. I loved the design. I loved uh, the pacing of it. I loved that uh, that there are multiple powerful women characters who are not completely subject to the male gaze. Uh, it really does feel like the closest we've gotten to a really out there feminist superhero movie. Uh, and so I, I, I appreciated it a ton. Oh yeah. Everything from the performances to the color, to the story, you know, and I learned from, you know, dialoguing with him at verbal diorama. A lot of people dislike that movie and I think you're all, they're crazy. And I not, loved it. Yeah, same. And I'm not here saying it's completely flawless. And I'll never say that about a DC movie. There's not a DC movie out there that's perfect. Um, but what I admire is that they're willing to take risks that a lot of other big studio movies are not. And they're, they're able to go totally bonkers. And I think that should be celebrated more and that should be encouraged more. Because as you get more risk takers, you're going to get closer and closer to like the really wild ride the really unexpected superhero movie that is also like a totally amazing story. Marvel has succeeded with this in some places, like with Thor Ragnarok. And I think with Black Panther, it's gotten really close to a really, really high bar of cinema. Um, but I think we should be celebrating those directors who are 
are willing to take completely bonkers risks. Oh, yeah. No disrespect to the MCU. It's a ton of fun. I mean, it is a TV show that has tricked everyone into that it's a movies. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but I mean, it's great. I, you know. Absolutely. We love the MCU. Good fun. We've done a lot of MCU episodes, um, you know, and we've, we, yeah, so no disrespect to the MCU. But I do agree that I like that the quote unquote DCEU is like, let's just drop the U and let's not make it a universe and let's let Margot Robbie do whatever she wants to do with Harley Quinn. And let's just make it as crazy as you can be. You mentioned, I really enjoyed, um, though not in the 2020 conversation, but both Shazam and Aquaman. Yeah. Also deeply flawed movies, but I like how they just kind of went for what they were and did not apologize for being what they were. And I thought that is, it's refreshing um, because sometimes the MCU falls into the trap of it has to fit the MCU style. It has to fit the MCU brand. So many movies serve the universe as opposed to serving themselves. And I like that DC has kind of been like, yeah, let's just do it our own way. Which brings me to, I will bring up another DC movie here that might be fun to mention and one that we definitely watched and talked about, but not quite as successful. So give me your hot take on Wonder Woman 84. Oh, man. So I wanted to love this movie so much. I, I love the first Wonder Woman. Um, I really appreciate Patty Jenkins' unapologetic commitment to sincerity uh, in the first Wonder Woman movie. And I do think some of that holds over into Wonder Woman 84. Um, and there are a lot of things that I think are great about Wonder Woman 84. I think uh, Gal Gadot is once again giving us a great performance. Uh, I think that Kristen Wiig was excellent as Barbara Minerva. Um and we're back after attending to some baby cries. Uh, yeah, so Bar- I think Barbara Minerva is a great character. I think Kristen Wiig uh, shows us a different side of herself that we didn't expect from her. I think there are some really cool um, sequences, really like inspiring sequences. The opening sequence with the uh, sort of tournament, I think, is fabulous. And even the like final sequence of Wonder Woman flying through the clouds, just like totally lifted my heart and made me want to sob. I'm so happy that Steve Trevor is back as weird and uncomfortable as the situation is. The fact that he's like borrowing somebody's body and Wonder Woman is like using uh, that person's body for sex is uh, like maybe something we should have addressed, but, um, but I'm happy that Chris Pine is back because I love him. I love that character. I think they have outstanding chemistry Um, So I think there's a lot to like about Wonder Woman 84, but on the whole, it doesn't come together for me. It doesn't transcend, you know, the sum of its parts. Uh, And I just wish, I wish, I wish that it did. If I had the wishing stone, I would wish that it was like a totally perfect movie. Um, And it's, it's kind of weird to watch in at the end of 2020, a whole bunch of people wishing for something greedy and then renouncing their wish and making, you know, this ultimate sacrifice for the good of humanity. It's weird to watch that when we're watching so many people worldwide refuse to wear a mask in public spaces. Uh, So it just oversteps uh, my ability to suspend 
disbelief at that point because oh you're too cynical on too optimistic (laughs) you're just a little too cynical at all of the covid deniers 2020 took a lot of my uh, a lot of my optimism all the QAnon believers and uh yeah uh, yeah yeah you know i think everything you said i i agree with um a few things that i thought were really cool uh because I think a lot of people are beating that movie down, I think a little needlessly. Yeah, I don't think it's like a total train wreck, like people are saying. A lot of people throw a lot of hate on that movie, and I think a lot of that is um, gatekeeper-y boys wanting a reason to hate a movie that stars a nerd movie, a comic book movie that stars a woman. Um, And I think that also happens in Birds of Prey, too, that's part of the reason that there's so much dislike is because these star, these amazing, awesome women and the comic book community can be, and the nerd community can be toxically masculine at times. And, um, but one thing that I really enjoyed was that, um, Oh my God, I'm blanking on the the main bad guy's name. Pedro Pascal. Pe- uh, the, that's the actor's yeah, name. As- I like that the con man's weapon that undoes the world is actually doing things for people. Like the power of the con man is to grant wishes. And I think that has this sort of, um, you know, deep, like satanic, like never make a deal with the devil because, you know, the devil's going to take something in return. It's never just going to be free. And I like that granting people what they ultimately want is really the undoing and the power that the con man is able to, you know, take is by saying, yeah, I'm going to have a transactional relationship to power. You know, I'm going to give you something and take something back versus wonder woman who has a more, um, you know, virtuous relationship to power. Yeah. She's altruistic. She gives of herself because she loves the world. She loves humanity and she thinks it's worth saving, which I think uh, is kind of ironic given her name, which is Diana. She's named after the uh, Roman goddess, the uh, Roman version of Artemis in Greek mythology. uh, And she has these roots in this kind of pagan Themyscira uh, versus the villain, Pedro Pascal's character, whose name is Maxwell Lord. Um, So Diana has this kind of like, New Testament Christ figure sort of aspect to her where she's like, I will just give of myself and I don't expect anything in return. Whereas Maxwell Lord is like, everything about my relationship to you is based in this much more ancient materialistic exchange of, uh, of prayer of wishes for material gain. Uh, so always this kind of interesting relationship to mythology through the, the wonder woman material, but there's this kind of, uh, interesting inversion of the character names versus what they represent. And the wishing stone is, you know, based in this old pagan God um, and this this exchange relationship. But then it's brought into the 80s, the sort of greed is good era. Uh, and we get to see what that ancient instinct, the instinct to make sacrifices or make prayers, make supplications, expecting something in return, uh, what that looks like in uh, in the modern world. Life is good, but it can be better. Absolutely. I think you nailed it there. Yeah, so Wonder Woman 84, loved it, parts of it, other parts didn't hit the mark, and people stop hating on it. It's just, it's a Wonder Woman movie. It's COVID. Let's just enjoy it and move on. I'm glad that it was here, that we were able to watch it on our TV, uh, and it almost felt like going to see a movie again. 
Absolutely. And um, so moving right along, I want to talk about some things that we did vis-a-vis the Netflix streaming program. So I want to uh, talk a little bit about Queen's Gambit. Oh, yeah. That was a show we watched early in the pandemic. Was it early in the pandemic or was it like two months ago? Oh, I don't know. That's the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that I mean, yeah. So we watched it at some point in 2020. I don't know when. And it's the show about this brilliant young woman who is a genius chess player and sort of her trials and tribulations making it in the professional chess world from a child to her becoming the world champion. And a few things that I really enjoyed about this, I thought um, it kind of takes the trope of the ingenious person, the misunderstood genius who's slightly tortured, which is almost always a man when that's told, and it puts it in the role of a young woman. And I thought that was an interesting take on this idea. Think of, we've seen Russell Crowe's A Beautiful Mind, for example, is one of those movies where it's about this tortured genius man who's so smart, but also a little crazy. Yeah. Sherlock is another great example of this. Uh, There's tons of, of examples of the man who is tortured and that is part of why he is a genius. Uh, He is isolated. He's a loner uh, and he is somehow uh, different from everyone else. And that's why, you know, he's able to access these great heights of genius. It's something that, like you said, we rarely see with a woman character. So it's interesting to see Beth, Uh, on this kind of journey and how she inverts it. And one other thing that I thought really interesting, and this is definitely some spoiler territory for Queen's Gambit. Um, So if you haven't watched it, you know, flash forward or fast forward a little bit. One of the interesting things about the show, as she dominates the American chess scene and has to then go against the Russian chess masters, and the idea that the Russian chess masters are superior to the American chess masters because they play as a team. They are a unit. They are collectivist in nature, which is in no small part a reflection on them being communists and communism being about the the collective good versus the individual good versus her, Beth, being a rugged individualist. And as she gets better and she wants to challenge the Russian masters, She goes to the American government and asks them for help. And they're like, nope, you're on your own. We're not going to sponsor you to go on the world uh, chess tournament. They don't believe in her. They don't support her. And she gets to fight the Russians in chess. And how does she actually end up getting what she needs to beat them? All of her friends that are also chess masters, they all come together and help her strategize and help her prepare, which then allows her to then go out and beat the chess master uh, in Russia. And one of the last scenes is now that she's done this, the American government wants to turn her into a hero. They want to celebrate her rugged individualism. And what does she do at the very end of the show? She gets out of the car. She doesn't fly to meet the president. And she just sits down in a park, introduces herself to a stranger, and plays a game of chess. And I think there is a, a interesting sort of rebuke to... American hyper-capitalistic rugged individualism that happens throughout that show, and it's very subtle. I don't think that's its main point, is to critique American capitalism in favor for, you know, Russian 70s socialism and communism. I don't think that's its main point. 
but there is an interesting meditation in there. I like that read. I think that's really fascinating. Uh, and watching, you know, her go from being a competitor with these men to being, you know, part of uh, an impromptu team, part of, you know, a, a group, a community that comes together and helps each other is pretty fascinating. Some other things that I love about the show, the relationship between Beth and her adoptive mother, I think uh, grows and changes and is something I haven't really seen before on screen, just the way that that relationship evolves, how heartbreaking it is, uh, and just what a what a tragic arc uh, those characters have. Also, Beth's relationship to substance abuse, I think, is explored in a really interesting way in this because it's really easy, I think, to write the character who can only perform uh, when they are under the influence. It's every, like, music biopic ever. It's, like, uh, the, the being able to conquer the the substance abuse is, like, the, the core aspect of so many stories. Um, and we expect that Beth is going to be one of these characters who can only perform when she's under the influence, but watching her overcome it, watching her just, like, not take a drink and still be able to play chess, I think is is exciting that it's not all about, you know, she's an addict and therefore she's a genius. Um, so I think that's, you know, another, another way that this show it does something a little bit different with the formula. Oh yeah. And how it makes her substance abuse structural in its very nature that as a child in a orphanage, what did they do to keep the girls calm? They drug them. Yeah. yeah. So she got experienced, her first experience of drug use was structural. It was done under medical advice by an institution, and it started her being hooked on substance abuse at a very, very early age. And that is in comparison to other narratives of substance abuse that paint substance abuse and addiction as a failing of an individual's will a failure of choice, and only if they make the choice to not do this, they'll get better. And someone who has addicts in family members and friends, some who have lost their lives, you know, it's not something that one chooses. It's an actual disease that requires treatment and it requires medical care. Not, uh, it's not because someone is just a weak person. And a lot of stories of substance abuse do that. And what they do with her is they say, no, she was taught to become an addict. She was pumped in drugs when she was still developing. This led her to substance abuse. Then it was her mother who taught her that if you are, you know, not feeling well, what do you do? You just drink. Yeah, you dull the pain with a beer. And so she learned this behavior from a young age. It was institutionalized. It was put into her and her overcoming the substance abuse is not the main driver of her. It's part of her story, but it's not the main driver of the story, which I think is a really different take on that subject. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, so let's... Uh, anything else about Queen's Gambit? No, let's move on. All right, so let us talk... Man, we might be able to get one or two more out of this. Let's talk season two of The Mandalorian. The Mandalorian. I thought you might be going there. Of course. How am I not going to bring up the biggest thing in Star Wars right now? You know, it's crazy that Rise of Skywalker happened and there's almost a little to no dialogue about it other than its missteps and miscues. 
and then this juggernaut called The Mandalorian. You know, a few things too. So not only did we watch Mandalorian season two, this year I also watched all of Star Wars The Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels. There is a really interesting Star Wars television universe, mostly being shipped by uh, Dave Fellini and driving by characters like Asuka Katana. Oh, I struggle to say that name. And now The Mandalorian. Um, and I think there's something really special happening. The Mandalorian season two continues off of season one. It's still very much a like multi-genre Western-themed. Here we have The Mandalorian going through adventures with Baby Yoda. Spoilers are now going to be up for Mandalorian season two. So here on in, we're going to spoil it. So if you haven't seen it yet, you might want to stop. So what do you think of Mandalorian season two, the emergence of Grogu, Ahsoka as a character in it? How do you feel? Um, I think it was a really exciting season. There were uh, some really standout episodes. For me, one of the best was the introduction of Ahsoka. Although I'm not someone who religiously watched uh, Rebels or the Clone Wars, I was excited to see her character come to uh, live action on the small screen. And that was a really beautiful episode. Uh, it really pulled from the samurai influences as well as uh, the early Westerns that inspired Star Wars in the first place and that have been such a bedrock of The Mandalorian. Uh, and that's something that we talked about on our episode wrapping up uh, season one that came out just about a year ago today, that episode. Um, so I, I loved that. It also had tons of vibes that reminded me a lot of Studio Ghibli, uh, Hayao Miyazaki's Princess Mononoke, which is my favorite Studio Ghibli film uh, and features, you know, a walled city, a fortress and a an outsider woman coming to fight the uh, the woman who is in charge of this city. Uh, so watching the two of those characters go head to head and have like incredible combat as two powerful women characters was really cool to see, especially in the Star Wars universe where that's really rare. There are definitely strong women in every installment of Star Wars, but you rarely see multiple women go head to head or be in opposition to each other. So that was super cool. Seeing, uh, you know, more of, uh, of baby Yoda, of Grogu, learning more about who he is and his past, learning his name and seeing what is in store for him in the future is really exciting. Although, you know, it makes me wonder if Mandalorian season three, I won't be able to tune in for the baby Yoda hour anymore because that was a huge part of uh, what I loved about the show was just watching him be adorable. So we'll see where that goes. I'm interested to see, um, you know, more about uh, the relationship between um, between Din Djarin and Bo-Katan uh, and Mandalore and the Mandalorian like race and all of that in the future because it it does feel like that has often been sidelined to the Baby Yoda story. So I'm hoping to see more of that to be a little bit more um, uh, put into Din Djarin's story going forward. Yeah, one thing that I think season one did really exceptionally well of of in The Mandalorian, wow, I can't talk, was how every episode was really its own contained narrative. And it felt like a build upon of traditional Western stories that we have in America, but put into the Star Wars universe. 
I like that it focused it on highly on the small characters, the people that you don't really see too much. They're not the Skywalkers. It's not about saving the galaxy or bringing balance to the force. It's really about this one character just trying to do a little bit of good while he makes his way through a rough and dangerous outer rim, a place that is very lawless. In season two, the one thing that I'm I'm curious about, season two of Mandalorian was also, because of the popularity of season one, it was designed to springboard into other television shows in many ways. Uh, the best episode was by far The Jedi, the one we were talking about with Ahsoka, but that is also the pilot for Ahsoka's own show, um, which will be, I believe, a miniseries and not a full show, I think, is the idea. And The Mandalorian isn't really a major feature or part of that. Um, we have Bo-Katan in it and then culminates in Luke Skywalker returning as a young, amazing Jedi, actually played by Mark Hamill and sort of aged down. This is all to say, I hope the Mandalorian doesn't just become a intertextual show designed to support now a TV universe. What made The Mandalorian great and the other Fellini television shows great was that he created characters that I fell in love with. Uh, first being Ahsoka, being the character that I think is the best character in Star Wars since the original cast, since the original Luke, Han, Leia, Vader. Ahsoka is an amazing character and I want to see her story just to see her story. I want to know what happens to the Jedi who gave up being a Jedi, who survived the purge. Um, I love the Mandalorian. I want to see this character make his way. I don't want the Mandalorian to be serving other shows. And one of the, the, the fears that I have, because how successful season two was, and it's a good, really good season of TV, my fear is, my worry is, that it's just going to serve everything else and it's going to become sort of a like homogenized MCU style television universe. And I don't know if that's going to happen, but like I see it and I'm like, oh, this episode's great because it has Bo-Katan in it. Good thing I've watched Rebels. Oh, this episode's great because it has Luke Skywalker in it. Good thing I've seen the original trilogy. Oh, this episode's great because it has Asuka in it and they mentioned Thrawn. Boba Fett, yeah. It has Boba Fett. Good thing I know this universe and I know what these symbols mean and it's very intertextual. But did Mandalorian 2 tell as successful stories? Now, I do think there were some things in there. They had um, the redemption of that other bounty hunter played by... Bill Burr, Bill yeah. Bill Burr, the guy that hates Philadelphia, um, I forget the name of the character, and I thought that was really great that that character made a stand, chose to be a little bit better than he was in season one, and then got his freedom as a reward for that. And the the episode between the Mandalorian, um, Bill Burr's character, and that Imperial commander, and Mandalorian has to take off his helmet, was probably one of the best, best things in the entire season two. And I hope we get more of that, and yes, I like that Luke Skywalker is there. Yes, I like that Boba Fett's in there. But I also want to see them 
you know, destroying gigantic sandworms. Yeah. Well, that first episode, very, very inspired by Dune, uh, just like the original trilogy was inspired by Dune. Uh, and that was a really fun episode with Timothy Oliphant showing up. Um, so uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you. I don't want it to just become an intertextual, like, look, there's that thing that I remember from that. Uh, because I think that it, it has already proven that it can do so much more than that. Uh, so I'm excited to see what happens in the future, uh, and, and hope that it, you know, it takes advantage of the fact that the galaxy is large and there are a lot of opportunities to explore it. There are a lot of opportunities for new characters uh, and I think it's it's already shown us that it can. So as long as it can keep, uh, you know, exciting us with what it can show us of a, a universe that we know is huge, uh, then I think it will continue to be successful. And so much of the Fellini television universe is built into Mandalorian season two. Dial it back a little bit. You know, it took all of season one for us to get to the Black Saber. And you don't need to know what the Black Saber is to understand that it's an awesome moment in Mandalorian season one. And then it gets more fleshed out and explained in season two with Boba Fett, Bo-Katan, um, Luke Skywalker, Ahsoka. It's like, okay, the, the name drop of Grand Admiral Thrawn. It's like, okay, we get it. This is all in the shared universe you know, and like, just don't, I just hope that doesn't become a crutch. Yeah. Just don't overdo it. Yeah, I agree. You know, and it's one of the lessons that, you know, we started with talking birds of prey. One of the lessons that at least for me as a fan and fans can have all different types of opinions on this. So I'm not saying this is right. I have a friend that would probably a few friends that would disagree with me on this. I don't get blown away by shared universes. It doesn't impress me anymore. I have had it. We've had it for a long time in the MCU. So the fact that you can tell big orchestrated stories that have, you know, moving parts and all the different pieces, while I recognize that's not easy to do, it takes a lot of work, but it doesn't impress me by itself. And in fact, I don't actually like it as much as I like just a good beginning, middle and end. And if you give me a good beginning, middle and end, with some characters that I can root for, some villains that are interesting and complex, some, you know, interesting, cool scenes, some good action, some good jokes. If it is a sincere story to itself, rather than a sincere story to the universe, I'm going to enjoy it more. And Mandalorian season two was a sincere story to itself. And they did use a lot of it to set up this broader universe. And I hope that's not all it ends up doing. And I get it. It's huge. It's a, it is one of the biggest TV shows out there. And it's one of the very few things Star Wars fans aren't trying to kill each other over. And that's awesome. You know, that Star Wars fans aren't out there trying to burn down the internet with digital pitchforks and torches yeah. over whether or not the Mandalorian's good. We all like it, and that's amazing. And I, I love that we all like it, and we're not trying to kill each other about it. However, just keep telling me good stories. The Outer Rim is a dark, weird place. Let it get dark and weird, and you know, and let's see what happens. 
and let the other things be the other things. Yeah. You know, you're saying, you know, I'm a little overshared universes. There's no better, you know, testament to that than the fact that we all kind of changed gears on how we consume media this year uh, to the point where we were so excited for new content that we all sat down and watched a show about uh, a young girl chess prodigy. And then we all watched a show that was a Regency uh, gossip girl mashup and also a little bit softcore porn for women in uh, Bridgerton. We all got into these things that are unexpected, are not shared universes, are not part of anything that we thought we'd be excited about before, um, just because there's something about the collective experience of uh, of watching something apart but together. Uh, so we were all just so hungry for new content that we tried new things and we came together on the internet. We came together in person, socially distanced to talk about these things. We came together on our podcasts uh, and we didn't need an MCU movie, you know, two or three times a year. We didn't need it to be a shared universe. We just needed something, uh, a story to come together over, even if those stories are not what we thought we'd be interested in in the first place. Yeah, you want to talk about how weird and crazy content was in 2020 and how it changed? All I got to say, Carol Baskins. Oh, my God. The fact that everybody knows who Carol Baskins is, is a that is the flag of freakness. Hey there, all you cool cats and kittens. That we can wave here because we all watched Tiger King. Yes, we did. And we all did it because it was like a car crash. We couldn't turn it away. We couldn't not look. We had to sit there and see what happened to the Tiger King because it was so insane and so bizarre. And only in America <laughs> could there be for-profit cruelty tiger cults. Tiger cults. Um, with a Tiger King. And it's so insane and crazy. But But to that point, you know, the thing that the Midnight Myth really likes is to break down the essential ingredients and in what makes something so compelling. And we like to, from a Campbellian lens, from a Joseph Campbell perspective, ask what unites these stories? What's the sort of magic ingredients? And one thing that we have seen in our you know, modern storytelling, how spectacle and the fact that you can pull things off that you could never have pulled off before can kind of dominate the headspace. And then once you start stripping away the ingredients, you find that they can be very hollow. And even if it's pleasurable, and I'll give a specific example, and I feel like I'm beating up on the MCU in this episode, oh, and I don't no, need it's to. Fine. A specific example, um, when Captain America in Endgame wields Mjolnir and becomes Captain Thor, that is a pleasurable moment for me as a Captain American diehard fan. That is a pleasurable moment because it's teased in Age of Ultron and it gets paid off. It's an amazing cinematic moment that literally makes me cheer when I watch it. That is meaningless. It strips itself, when you strip that down to its core, all that is is to make the fans cheer. Now, there's nothing wrong with spectacle for the sake of spectacle. However... We, a Midnight Myth listeners, are striving for something more. We want there to be art underneath it. And that's a moment, as fun as it is, as much as it makes it, us happy, 
There's not a lot there once you start breaking it down. It's simply done just to make us feel good. And like a bag of Skittles or a thing of M&M's. Donuts for dinner. It feels good, but there's not a lot of substance behind it. And one thing that I think we have seen here in 2020 in how we're consuming and relating to media, a lot of things that have some more substance, at least for us, started to dominate. And not having a new Star Wars movie, not having a new Marvel movie, which doesn't mean I don't love Star Wars and Marvel properties, but not having those in our lives meant that there was space for other things that were totally unexpected and really, really great and had a lot of core substance. The man and what my critique about Mandalorian season two is that some of it was not very substantive. Does it make sense that Luke Skywalker would come and get Grogu? Yes. Yes, it does. So there is more there. It's not just Captain America wielding Mjolnir. It is something that is substantive. It's related to the characters. It was dramatic and it was cool. But if all it ends up doing is paying off fan moments, then we get to Captain Thor. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I think we've pushed this about as far as we can take it. With the baby. baby. With the baby. (laughs) And um, for whatever reason, my lungs are really not happy today. So... I'm going to wrap it. Any final thoughts? Uh, thank you so much for listening. We know this was a little, uh, you know, more of a, a casual chat than our usual episodes. And some of our, our work in the future may be more like this while we prepare our more deep dives, while we find time to research and get those ready. So if there are things that you want to hear us talk about more off the cuff, let us know uh, and we'll try to get episodes out for you. Uh, this is something that with a baby strapped to your chest is always uh, touch and go. So uh, we will get this to you as much as we possibly can. Uh, it makes us feel more like ourselves as we are, uh, you know, adjusting to our, our totally new normal. Uh, but we love you and we'll be back soon with a deeper dive. Uh, and we thank you so much for listening. And until next time, be kind. Be kind. <laughs>